0: We're about to look at two passages this morning. And so in the first passage, we've got an event that's recorded in the Gospels, which the Apostle Peter then recounts in a letter, and he relates that to God's Word for us today. So hopefully you'll see all those connections. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant Word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him and suddenly looking around they no longer saw anyone with them but jesus only and as they were coming down the mountain he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead so they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean and now shifting over to second peter chapter 1 the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever." Let's pray together.
1: Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, and we stand now before you and ask that you would once again pour out that grace upon us, that you would open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to receive your word. And Father, we pray that your word would indeed find fertile soil, that the good news of the gospel would be planted within us and that it would change us from the inside out. Father, our prayer this morning is that we would clearly hear your voice, that we would hear your voice with great confidence this morning, because when you open your mouth to speak, you call worlds and universes into existence. When your Son walked this earth, it was by the power of his voice that he spoke to the blind and they received their sight, and to the deaf and they were made to hear, to the lame and they were made to walk. Father, we pray that we also would hear your voice, and by the power of your voice, that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, and that you would make us who are lame because of our sin to run with joy. Into the arms of our Savior, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. I should have mentioned this earlier, um, but we announced it last week, um, and accidentally we left Children's Church in there in the bulletin, so I hate to psych anybody out by that, but the children are going to be staying. We're giving our Children's Church teachers a little break for uh, a couple of weeks here, this Sunday and next Sunday. next sunday also i 'll be beginning a new series, um, and which i 'm very excited about, but i 'm going to tell you more about that next week this morning i 'm anxious and excited to challenge you with something uh, for this new year in two thousand and sixteen, which lies right before us um, and we 're mainly going to look at that passage from Second Peter chapter One that we read earlier. Um, but I want you to think about how Unique it is, uh, and what a unique perspective it is to look at these two passages together, to hear them read together Mark chapter 9, the story of the Transfiguration, and then 2 Peter chapter 1, as Dave mentioned, Peter reflecting upon that experience. Um, That Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark um, is an unchallenged tradition throughout history, Um, going all the way back to AD 140. um, All the historical and biblical scholars will tell you that there's this unbroken tradition uh, attributing Mark's gospel to Mark himself. But there's also an equally unchallenged tradition from scholars about where Mark got his stories. Um, Listen to two quotes from the second century. Mark, who is called stump-fingered because he had rather small fingers in comparison with the stature of his body… Now, that has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm about to talk about, but it's the beginning of that quote, and I thought it was funny to leave it in. Um, Okay, he goes on. He, that is Mark, was the interpreter of Peter. After the death of Peter himself, he wrote down this same gospel in the region of Italy. In the second quote, A.D. um, 200, after the death of Peter and Paul, Mark, the disciple of Peter, also transmitted to us in writing the things preached by Peter. So Mark got all his stories from Peter himself and it, this morning we read this story in Mark chapter 9 where Peter along with James and John they went up this mountain and they saw Jesus transfigured before their very eyes, right? And in 2nd Peter in that 2nd Peter passage we read Peter's writing and he's reflecting on that same incredible day, that same amazing experience that he had on that mountain. And by itself, that's enough just to make this interesting. But I want you to think this morning particularly about Peter's reflections. He had this amazing, this incredible experience, right? Surely a watershed moment in his life where he saw, along with James and John, Jesus in his unveiled beauty and glory, right, beaming from himself. And he he knew he didn't dream it up because he had with him two witnesses, James and John, who were also there with them, And they all saw Jesus' glory, and they also saw men who had been dead for centuries, Moses and Elijah. And right there in those two figures, you have the entirety of the Old Testament summed up before him. Not only Jesus, but Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. And here's Peter's reflection on that, that Incredible experience, basically. He says it was awesome. But this, this Bible, it is more sure and it is more certain and it is more clear than even that. Jack Nicholas is arguably. One of the greatest golfers ever, if not the greatest golfer ever. Um, for a while, people, used, you'd turn on a golf tournament and you'd watch, and they would always be talking about, will Tiger Woods ever catch up with Jack Nicklaus with all of his major golf tournament tournaments that he won? And, you know, if you watched it the past few years, you realize that's probably not going to happen with Tiger anymore. Um, but no one that I'm aware of anyway is even coming close to threatening Nicholas's record. So he is certainly one of the greatest golfers ever, if not the greatest. What made him so great? I I read this article years ago where Nicholas told the story of how every year that he was playing professional golf, he went through the same routine at the beginning of every golf season. And what he would do was he would get on a plane and he would fly home to his old golf coach that taught him how to play the game of golf. And he would show up, and he would say to his coach, teach me how to play golf. Greatest golfer ever. And he would show up, and he would say, start from the beginning with me and teach me how to play the game of golf. And he said that his golf coach would hold up a golf club in front of him, and he would say, Jack, this is a golf club. This is the grip on the golf club, and this is the face of the golf club, and this is how you put your hands on the golf club, and this is how you stand and address the ball. He went through all of this. Now, listen, the reason I'm telling you that is he was great because he knew that the first things were always the most important things, right? He wasn't looking to get beyond the fundamentals. He was drilling down into and perfecting the first things. Listen, I want to challenge you this morning and in this coming new year to make the first things first in your life, right? To build your life on the most important things, to drill down into the more sure, certain word of God. If you do it, I am telling you, it will change you. It will not leave you the same. It will bring you into maturity. Are you building your life on this? Right, do you know how to use this word? Do you know why you need this word so desperately in your life? These are our three simple points this morning. What you must hear, how you must hear it, and why you must hear it. Okay, so let's look at this first point, what you must hear. You know, Peter, he wasn't just writing abstract doctrine and theology here. He was writing a letter. And he was writing a letter to a group of people who were face to face with the brokenness and the hardness and the messiness of life. And he wanted to help them and he wanted to encourage them and he wanted them to be strengthened. And of all the things you could imagine him saying and writing to this group of people, he, he wrote to these people that they needed one thing above everything else. And that one thing they needed was the Bible, the scriptures. He's saying what you must hear is God's voice in the pages of Scripture. He doesn't give them the newest, the latest, the sexiest fad or formula for success. More children's programs or bigger events for the church to be putting on. He doesn't say you're missing some experience in your life that if you just had this kind of experience it would make all the difference in the world. No, what he says is that you must hear God speak. In his word. If you're going to grow, if you're going to change, if you're going to be strengthened, if you're going to come to know Jesus, the one thing you need is the Bible. And you know, we hear that, and that pro- probably doesn't shock you very much because it might even sound a little like self promotion. Um, you know, one of the authors of the Bible saying that you really must hear the Bible. Um, but listen, How this one author, Peter, makes his point is fascinating. In verses 16 through 18 of that 2nd Peter chapter passage, he says, Don't forget. We saw with our own eyes Jesus' glory. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there when Jesus wasn't just reflecting glory, but the glory was beaming from Him, that brilliant glory. We actually heard Jesus' Father speak from on high about His beloved Son. And don't forget, we saw Moses, and we saw Elijah too. Can you imagine that experience? I mean, absolutely amazing. You don't forget something like that. I mean, they fell down terrified, Mark wrote. You don't forget an experience like that. You can see just how amazing it was if you look at that passage in Mark chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, because there it says Peter, when he saw this, he said, um, let's put up some tents for y'all. If he was a southerner, he would have said that, I guess. But, and Mark, you know, he gives us insight, having known Peter and being... And having been Peter's disciple into why Peter said that, Mark wrote this. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Look, you don't forget terror like that. You don't forget an experience like that. You don't forget how you said something really stupid when that happened. That kind of experience is a game changer. It's the most incredible experience You could ever imagine, and Peter wrote in verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, which is a very good translation of verse 19. To say the prophetic word is another way to refer to the Bible, right? And please hear this clearly. He is saying, you have something more concrete, something more certain, something more important Something more life-changing than being with Jesus on that mountain. And that something is the Bible. And, and I, I know, it, for me, it sounds weird to say that. But Peter said it. I didn't say it. And he was with Jesus on that mountain. You know, if you're at all like me, you, you want something that will change your life. And you're regularly looking for those things because you want to be different and you want to change and you want certainty and you want hope to come into your life. Listen, I'm a city boy. I grew up in the city, not in the country. Um, Sometimes I pretend that I'm a country boy, um, go hunting, those kind of things. But I didn't do Boy Scouts or anything like that. I, I don't know anything about the outdoors really. And in college, a bunch of guys got together and we said, we're going to go camping in the Smoky Mountains. And we're going to go camping for a week. And, um, and we hiked in to some place that was two miles in because someone had told us about this spot we needed to go. And we had a map and all that kind of stuff. And we absolutely did not know what we were doing. Um, and so we brought everything that we thought we would need for a week. And we brought ice chests Full of ice and food and canned drinks and pots and pans and changes of clothes. And we brought waders and fishing poles and tackles and ju- tackles and tackle and all kinds of stuff, right? Um, and to say that we brought too much with us is a massive understatement. Um, but we were like nine hours from home and we were. Fully committed. Um, And so we had to do it. So I just can't describe to you how heavy and how miserable that stuff was hiking in for two miles uh, in the hills, right? The morning we were leaving, I woke up and I looked out of my tent and I saw my good friend Jimmy, Jimmy Kiker. I hope he listens to this. Um, And I saw him sitting by the fire and he was burning his sleeping bag. And, um, and I looked at him, and he just shook his head, and he said, I can't carry this stuff out again. Um, and that morning, we took his cue, and we burned the majority of our belongings. Um, sleeping bags, clothes, and it was just, it was just crazy. Um, and um, we just had all this unnecessary stuff with us, Right? And here's what I'm saying to you. We burden ourselves with so, so very much, hoping that this or that will maybe change us. You know, I need a new experience. I need a new book. I need a new idea. I need a new program, whatever it is. And you need to hear Peter saying, you already have the one thing, that is absolutely certain and capable of changing your life. And it's the Bible. And you might be sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I know I need to change. And I want to change. Or you might might be like some of the people Peter is writing to and you're discouraged and you're weary and you're overwhelmed and you're longing for strength and hope. Or you might even wonder if you really can know Jesus at all. I can offer you you very few guarantees in life, Um, but I I certainly can't guarantee you an experience like Peter's or like mine or like anyone else's. But I can guarantee you that if you place yourself under God's Word, it will change you. I can't guarantee you a life with rosy, and complete and perfect circumstances that you think will make your life go well. But hear the voice of God, and I can promise you strength and hope in the midst of great difficulty in your life. And I'm not trying to be mean here, but if you're a lazy skeptic look, who loves to assume that you already know everything that God has to say, but you won't honestly listen to this, then you will stay an uncertain skeptic forever. Listen, but if you come to this Word and you read it and you study it and you sit beneath it and you meditate upon it and you listen to it, you will find this to be more sure, more certain, and it will change you because experiences, they come and go, right? And the interpretation of our experiences, they change over time. But Peter is saying this is unchanging and certain. This is what you must hear. Okay, second. Let's talk about how you must hear. In the second half of verse 19, Peter wrote, To which you will do well to pay attention is to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says you have to hear the Bible the way you would pay attention to a light in a dark place. And here's what I think Peter's getting at. He's saying here's how you hear the Bible. You use it in order that you can see in the dark. And I don't know about you, but when I walk into my house at night, and it's dark inside, I don't even think about this. It's just second nature and instinctive. Immediately, I open that door, and my hand is on the wall, and I'm kind of searching for that light switch so that I can turn on the lights and so that I don't bang my shins on the kitchen chairs or, or trip over somebody's shoes that they left out, which uh, <clears throat> is a personal frustration Of mine. Um, But um, I don't even know where I am now. Okay, yeah. So Peter, he's saying this is how you use God's Word. You use it like a light in the dark. And I wish I had more time to give this, but Peter wrote something about until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And it sounds very, very cryptic, but I think he's saying one day, someday, everything will be perfectly clear. And everything will be light, and true reality will be revealed for everyone to see. But until that day when the new heavens and the new earth come, he is saying, dark clouds will seek to obscure and hide reality from you. Listen, this is true for the believer and the unbeliever. I I was reading Martin Luther uh, earlier this week, and um, if you've ever read Martin Luther, he is a very confident uh, individual, right? But here's what he wrote, what I stumbled across in his writing. He wrote, I sometimes wrestle in hours of darkness. I know how often I suddenly lose the beams of the gospel and grace. It is, though, it is as though thick, dark clouds obscured them from me. What do you need when thick dark clouds roll in on you. You need the light in order to see. Or maybe you aren't a believer, and I really do sympathize with you, um, and I can't do much with this today, um, but a big question for your skepticism might just be out of a weariness and a fear of one more truth claim. Right, here we go again, one more claim to know the truth and the light, how can we achieve any clear right any clear certain knowledge about God which I hope you understand is a very fair and honest question to ask and I can only give you a very partial answer today but the bible is clear throughout it is constantly saying we wouldn't know we would never achieve any certain knowledge about God unless God revealed himself Unless he lifted the veil of darkness for us to see. And this is what Peter is saying. This is more certain than any experience you could ever have in life, this Bible. Because it is God's revelation of himself. Down in verse 20, he says, this isn't someone's private, personal interpretation of things. It is God's revelation, and it's fascinating to me that Christian or not, we're so naturally averse to seeing things the way they really are, that we actively suppress and run and hide from reality. You've felt this before, I'm pretty sure, in your life, where you get close to seeing who you really are, or you begin to see the world as it really is. And this is true. The older you get, the darker the world will seem in your life. And you see that, and immediately you want to change the subject. Think about something else. Be distracted by something else. Numb yourself with something else to that reality. We want to imagine that we're good and nice people, not that we're twisted and broken. We want to imagine that we're flawed, but not that flawed, right? We have good motives for what we do. We want to imagine that we aren't hypocrites like those people. Um, One of the core things this word comes to expose with its light is us. You know, I read a a pretty good bit. This is the most raw, unflattering book on humanity that I have ever read in my life. Right To suggest that the darkness isn't just out there, but that it's actually coursing through your veins in a radical, corrupt self-centeredness. To suggest that even your greatest works and achievements in life are thoroughly stained with brokenness like filthy menstrual rags. I would have never come up with that image on my own. That's Isaiah 64. But you know what else I never would have dreamed up on my own? That God would tell me and tell you that even though that's true of you, that His love for you is so great That he would crush his son just to have you. And that's what God says in Isaiah 53. Peter is saying you use the word to see things the way they really are. Both your brokenness and God's grace. To expose both your deepest fears about yourself and your highest hopes that someone would see you to the very bottom of your life and love you fully and completely and perfectly. A reality, as G.K. Chesterton wrote, that gives room for both wrath and love to run wild. What I, what I just said in the past two minutes is at the heart of the message of the Bible. And we need to use it like a light to see in the darkness, to see for the very first time, or to fight through the thick, dark clouds that surround us and see again. My Spanish teacher, when I was in seventh grade, uh, it was Mr. Rodriguez. Rodriguez. Um, we had to learn how to roll our R's. Um, and Mr. Rodriguez, um, he called my parents one day, and he told them that he thought I needed glasses. And um, he, he had always seen me sitting in the back of his class squinting, and I couldn't see the chalkboard. And when, and when I got home, my parents told me I had to go get my eyes checked for glasses. I was so upset. I was seventh grade, right? I mean, nerds wear glasses. Um, I do not want to wear glasses at all. I know I see some of you with glasses. That was my seventh grade self. But um, anyway, when I finally got my glasses, <laughs> and all of a sudden I realized how blind I actually was, it it, it was amazing. I, I I had gotten so used to all those blurry lines and vague shapes in my life, right? I was used to squinting at things to see, and now I could see. Have you ever heard someone who actually needs glasses say, oh, I miss the good old days (laughs) when I couldn't see, I couldn't recognize my friends, (laughs) I was bumping into things? Of course not. No one who needs glasses or contact lenses or whatever ever says anything like that. They wake up and they put on their glasses or they go get LASIK surgery or they put in their contacts so that they can see. You see, Peter is saying you open the Bible to see reality, to see yourself, to see the world, to see God as they really are. You hear this word rightly, he's saying, when you use it like a light shining in the dark. You know what Peter is saying when he says you will do well to pay attention to it? He's saying you do yourself a favor when you put on these glasses. You're doing yourself good when you walk into a dark room and you turn on the the lights so that you can see. You'll be a bruised, battered, and broken mess in life until you hear God's voice that gives shape to reality. Under this word is the only place you can find real certainty, real comfort, real joy, real peace, real transformation. All right, last thing I want you to consider is this why you must hear. So, how you must hear, or what you must hear, how you must hear, and finally, why you must hear. Why you must hear and pay attention to this word. Peter tells his readers and you that you must hear this word because the Bible, he says, is not man's word. Look at verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Above all, it's That's a big signal, right? This is really important, he's saying. Above all, you need to understand that this Bible is not man's word. The Bible isn't someone's opinions. It isn't someone's educated guesses about reality. The Bible isn't uh, some philosophy. It isn't uh, someone's ideas, right? It isn't someone's interpretations. It's something very different, he's saying. You see, opinions can't and won't change your life. They never have. Right, And the latest and greatest and most impressive philosophies can't lead and change you and transform you from the inside out. And educated guesses don't shape you and bring freedom into your life where all there was was slavery before. The Bible, Peter wrote, he is very different from man's words. He's saying these are the very words of God. Look at verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we could, talk, we could talk for days just about that one verse. But the reason he's saying that this word is more certain, more certain than even his incredible experience that he had on the mountain with Jesus, is because he's saying it is the very word of God. And think with me just for a minute about the difference between your words or man's words and God's words. When you speak, and when you call out, and you use your words, your words are essentially powerless. They always have been. And parents know this very well. Because when they say, come to dinner, (laughs) and they hear back, I'm coming, in five minutes, nobody's there. And then they say, I said to come to dinner now. Five minutes more, nothing, until eventually said parent has to get up and go turn off the TV or take their iPhone away and threaten bodily harm kind of things, you know, Um, does anything happen? Man's words, your words, my words, you know what they can do? They can express a desire for a particular reality. But when God speaks, it is reality, There is no difference from his word and his action. When God says, let there be light, he doesn't then go make light. There just was light. When Jesus in the boat stands up and tells the storm to be quiet and still and calm, he doesn't say that and then go calm the storm. It is calm when he speaks. Listen, I cannot guarantee you much. I've already said that. But I can guarantee you that this word, where everything else in your life has failed, it can change you. Because this word doesn't simply describe reality. It declares and creates reality. Listen, I'm not sure this morning what your fears are or what your insecurities are Or what your disappointments in life are this morning, or or, or even what your doubts are this morning. But I can tell you this if you think you're ugly and Jesus calls you beautiful, then you are. And if you feel in your life intense shame and brokenness, but He calls you forgiven and washed. Then you are. If you are weak and he calls you strong, then you are. If you feel terribly alone in life and he calls you loved, then you are. If you are a broken and sinful mess, but he calls you his beloved child, then that is exactly what you are. If you feel terribly insecure, in a dark, threatening world, but He calls you secure in the righteousness of His Son, then that is what you are. When Jennifer and I were dating and engaged and and now married for a number of years, it's kind of creeping up. um, My wife wrote me, or has written me, a lot of little love letters. Um, They used to be more frequent than they are now, by the way. But... um, Jennifer. Um, But uh, anyway, over those same number of years, I've had other people write me letters um, as well, but letters from my wife and letters from other people are are, are very different. Uh, They're both letters on a page, letters that go to make up words and words that form sentences, those kind of things. But I don't read those letters the same way, and I can't read those letters the same way. Why? Why do I read and reread my wife's letters? I have a drawer full of every letter my wife has ever written me. You know, I, I know that I'm heading into like cheesy, sappy territory, but listen. If you write me a letter, and if it's a nice letter, because <laughs> um, I've gotten some letters that weren't nice, um, but if it's a nice letter, I might hold on to it for a while even. But eventually there's going to come a time where I say, you know, it's time to clean out this drawer. And when I see your letter, I'll probably think, man, that was awfully sweet. And then I'll throw it in the trash. (laughs) But not her letters. Not hers. Those are words for me to visit and revisit again and again. Words to be reminded that she loves me. And there were some times she even liked me right? The Bible is God's revelation, the revelation of His glory and holiness and righteousness and of His, not undying, but of His dying love for you. Every other love story you've ever encountered in life is playing catch-up to this story. And is trying at its very best to recreate this story. And this story, whether you've never heard it or heard it years ago, it needs to be visited for the first time or revisited for the thousandth time. Because it is God's word to you as personal and as real as any of the letters I've received from my wife. And his word, unlike hers and unlike yours, has the power to change you because it is the very Word of God. So here's, here's my challenge to you very, very quickly. Two, two little parts here. First, I want to encourage you. Do not miss what we are doing this morning, right? Give this gathering under God's Word a real priority in your life. Because I know how it works in your life. That you get down the road and you say, well, if we make it back in town in time, we'll go to church. And we'll sit underneath God's word. I want to challenge you to tell yourself, we are going to get back for that. It has a real priority in our lives. To hear again, you need to have this word in order that you would be changed, in order that you would grow. To hear again and again and again the voice of the one who loves you, calling you beautiful calling you forgiven, calling you loved as his child. Because I promise you this, if you are anything at all like me, by next Sunday, you will have forgotten it. And you will need to hear it again and again and again. And in between those Sundays, I want to encourage you this year to read your Bible regularly I try to think of another way to say it. It just sounds so very uh, paternalistic or something. I don't know. But to read your Bible regularly and daily, to listen to God's voice and to be honest about what it says about the reality of your brokenness and the reality of His grace in your life. Um, I asked our website, guys, to put... uh, On the homepage of our website, a link to a yearly Bible reading plan. So you can actually go to our website and find uh, Robert Murray McShane's yearly Bible reading plan. I'm trying to make this as easy as possible for us, Um, for you and for me. To say, we need a regular diet of this Word, this Word alone that has the power to change us, to read it, to study it, to meditate upon it, to place yourself under it. It is the Word you must hear, the Word that brings light into darkness, the Word that doesn't just describe reality, but actually creates it. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning to be gathered And we are thankful that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have given us a light into our path. And that light is your word, your very word. Father, we pray that you would make us into a people of the word, that others would describe us this way, that we are a people who know how desperately we need to hear the voice of the one who made us and has redeemed us in Jesus. Father, I pray as we open your word regularly, week in and week out, you would show us reality, the way things really are, that you would reveal to us our broken condition, but that you would also surely remind us and show us the reality of your perfect grace and your perfect love for your children. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.